Man. I could listen to that all day. Say it with me. This is my Bible. God's written living word to me. It tells me who God says I am. And uncovers what God says is mine. Because it's how he thinks. I choose to believe and act on what I'll read. And therefore I am transformed. Amen. Many of you know that we have begun a study of the book of Romans. We're making good progress. Last week we Last week we got to uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. I think so. Amen. It is my intention today to spend some time on the next several verses through verse 5, perhaps even verse 6. By way of review, in verse 1, let's just go there. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Can you imagine spending an entire service on that verse? Yeah, I reviewed it. It was pretty good. <laughs> I encourage you to watch it. If you watched it really early in the week, the, uh, the, not the recording, but the, uh, the post-production was messed up. And uh, that's since been redone. So revisit it. A slave of Jesus Christ, Paul said. This isn't a ball and chain concept. This speaks of a relationship with the Father where he lavishes his generosity on us. Paul said, I'm chosen, which means marked, to be an apostle. We learned last week that in God's faith, mankind is associated in Christ even before the foundation of the world. So what makes the gospel so powerful is all we need to do is talk about our best friend, Jesus. Because in his mind, in the faith of God, he's already redeemed all of mankind to himself. And the word apostle means to represent an extension of. So all of you, in a sense, can be apostles, or at least in the apostolic ministry, of by way of extension, sharing with others about your best friend. And the good news of this is that he's already redeemed them, hallelujah, already forgiven them, and sees them, born again, sees them, and has declared them his, part of his family. Paul concludes verse 1 by saying, I sent you out, Paul. I sent you out to preach this good news. In the mirror translation, that verse reads this way. My mandate and message is to announce the goodness of God to mankind. Amen. If there's anything about your gospel that doesn't speak of the goodness of God, it's not the gospel. Continuing now with verse 2 of chapter 1 of Romans. Paul says, God promised 
this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. You have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. Say it, I belong to Jesus Christ. Now see, most of us think that happened when we were in a church service, we felt convicted of our sin, we responded and came to the altar and said yes. Or we were in a big meeting, maybe in an evangelistic crusade with the likes of Billy Graham. And again, we felt ashamed and guilty and convicted of our sins and we responded and went forward perhaps in the service and said yes to Jesus Christ. Maybe yours happened in a different way. Maybe yours happened at home or while taking a walk or walking the dog or doing something where you realized all of a sudden or you came to grips with the fact that for months now you had been sensing there's something missing from my life. I need Jesus. And you said yes to Jesus. And it's at that point most of us believe we became his. The truth is we became his before the foundation of the world. And what you and I are now finding out that we have belonged to him from the foundation of the earth and that in simplicity, we're simply pulling back the curtains as it were. We're peeling off the layers of the onion and realizing what God has done, past tense, in the person of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Verse 2 says... God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Francois Dutrois, in the Mirror Translation, states this. This message is what the Scriptures are all about. It remains the central prophetic theme and content of inspired writing. That's verse 2 in the Mirror Translation. Again, this message, Paul said, this good news is what the Scriptures are all about. It remains the central prophetic theme and content of inspired writing. I submit to you that the message about Jesus is the content and context of all Scripture. You have to remember that for 350 years after the New Testament church was born in the book of Acts, they didn't have a Bible like we enjoy today. Those 66 books had not yet been canonized and collected and bound in leather and printed. Their Bible was preaching from the Old Testament Pentateuch and the prophets, the law of Moses and the prophets. That's what they preached from. And they still had to preach Christ. Hallelujah. Imagine that. No New Testament. No Bible as we know it. And they preached Christ and turned Asia Upside down. How'd they do it? They kept Jesus Christ as the center, the content and context 
of all of their scriptures. See, I really believe that the character, the behavior, and the ministry of Jesus is the lens through which all scriptures should be viewed and interpreted. If you're trying to interpret your Bible through some other lens or means of interpretation outside of the behavior and the character of Jesus, you're going to misinterpret scripture. Now this beautiful word gospel used in verse 2 and verse 1 is used nine times in the book of Romans. It literally means good news. The word gospel means good news or to announce God's goodness. Look at somebody and say God's goodness. I'm telling you about God's goodness. See, the the gospel was commonly used. That term, gospel, was commonly used in the culture of their day. Just like good news would be used in our culture today. Let me give you an example. Have you had any good news? That would have been common in their day to ask that. And it would have been this Greek word, euangelon. Euangelon. Or gilion. I can't pronounce it, but that's the Greek. In ancient secular Greek, gospel described good news of any kind prior to the writing of the New Testament. It had no definite religious connotations to it in the ancient world until the cult of Caesar, which was the state religion and in which the emperor, Caesar, required everyone to worship him and him alone is God. So gospel was used for the proclamation of good news. And by the way, it was used throughout the Roman Empire in many ways, particularly to announce the death or capture of the enemy. That was gospel when they would bring captured enemy back into the city and parade them down the city streets and have a huge crowd shouting the gospel, the good news of Rome. We've conquered another enemy. Let me quickly give you a little history regarding Rome that applies so much to our use of this word or our understanding of this word gospel. Julius Caesar was actually never officially emperor. He was assassinated in March of 44 BC. His enemies didn't want anybody to become the sole ruler. Rome and the then-known world entered into turmoil as a result. The expertise that they had gained through ruthless military conquest was now turned inward. The Civil War focused initially on the struggle between those who had killed Julius Caesar and those who wanted to avenge his death. For this purpose, Caesar's adopted son and heir, the young Octavian, teamed up with Mark Antony, who had been Caesar's friend. The alliance was short-lived once Caesar's assassins, Brutus and Cassius, had been defeated. Antony and Octavian became rivals for ultimate power. Antony traveled the Middle East, drumming up massive support. Octavian, though, though less experienced, was not going to give up without a struggle. And so the crucial battle took place at sea on September 2nd of 31 BC off of the coast of Actium in western Greece. 
Octavian's army and navy won the battle. And Antony fled to Egypt with his famous consort, or consort, Cleopatra. And there they both committed suicide. So now imagine, because again, gospel was common back then in that culture to use it. Imagine what the good news was. Civil war's over. Octavian is won. Antony has committed suicide. Our streets are now again free. We're a free people. We can go on with our society. We can go on with families. War is over. We will again become a nation of prosperity and safety. Good news was announced. And isn't that interesting how the term has completely shifted today from being an announcement to being Advice. Advice about your behavior. Advice about what's wrong. Advice about how you need to change to join our club. In fact, seeing the Christian faith as news that is good is itself, ironically, news. For many, the good news has become about giving good advice. How to live, how to pray. Here's some principles about being a better Christian, a better person. Oh, and in particular, here's how to make sure that you're on the right track for what happens after death. Take this advice, say this prayer, and you'll be saved. You won't go to hell. You'll go to heaven. That's not good news. That's good advice. You say, my church hasn't forgotten the good news. We, we know that Jesus died for our sins. He took our punishment so that we could go to heaven. Isn't that the good news? No, not in its entirety. It's part of the good news, but you've left a significant part out. It's incomplete to say that. The message of good news that Christ preached, his message, and the message about him that the early Christians called good news was not about how to escape the world. It was about how the one true God is changing it, changing the entire world radically, forever. I am coming into the world, and I'm going to change it. This is why the gospel in the Gospels, it says that Jesus came to save that which was lost. say, so, oh, we know that. In fact, you just told us that's not the whole gospel. No, I told you that personal salvation, just saying, Jesus died for my sins, I've accepted that, and I'm forgiven, and I'm going to go to heaven, isn't the complete gospel. Jesus came to save that which was lost, not those who were. Oh, now some of you are looking at me like a calf at a new gate. Listen, Jesus didn't come to save those who were. He came to save that which was. I submit to you that those who were are included in that which was. If you save that which was, then those who were are included. What was lost? Not who, what was lost? All of creation, the earth, mankind, it all fell. When Adam sinned, it all collapsed. And God lost all of creation and it became under the dominion of the enemy. 
because of Adam's abdication. So when God put together this great plan, this great good news, the gospel, it was not merely to save man from his sins and forgive him. It was to restore the entire creation, to redeem that which was lost. Mm. Many assume Christianity is just another religion, a moral system or philosophy. They assume Christianity is about advice. It isn't. Christianity is simply good news. It is the news that something has happened as a result of which the world is a different place today. And that's why when we go and we share our lives and, and we demonstrate the power of the kingdom and the power of a changed life, it affects so many more than when you get your Bible out and beat people over the head and preach to them moral doctrine. You don't need to do that. The Holy Spirit will take care of that in each individual's life as they approach the kingdom, as they approach the Savior, as they peel back the layers of the onion or peel back the curtain and the Wizard of Oz and realize there's something more back there. And it's different than what we initially thought. Jesus was not inviting them to try a new way of thinking or living that would enable them to live differently or think differently. He was telling them that something had happened which had changed the world. That the world was now in a different place. And that he was summoning them to be part of that new, different reality. He was telling them about an event that would cause them to adjust their entire lives in order to come into line with the way things now were. And what was that? Look at verse 3 and verse 4. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. And he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. The mirror translation of those two verses says this. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. The Son of God has his natural lineage from the seed of David. However, his powerful resurrection from the dead by the Holy Spirit locates and confirms his being and sonship in God. Yes. You see, if you leave the resurrection out of the good news, it's no good news. Paul said, you're still in your sins. If Christ be not raised, you're all still in your sins. This whole thing falls apart if Christ is not raised. And from before the foundation of the world, God had in his mind a plan to redeem everything that had fallen and been turned over to the enemy back to himself through his Son through the resurrection of his son, back to life. I love this word locates. It comes from the Greek word to mark out beforehand, to define. Literally, it means a horizon. It's the same word that Paul used back in verse 1. Speaking about my mandate, my being marked out, my horizon. You see, 
Religion is man's search for God. The gospel is God's rescue and inclusion of man into what Jesus accomplished, restoring man's fellowship with the Trinity. I'll say it again. All religion is man seeking for God. But the gospel is God's rescue and inclusion of man into what Jesus accomplished on his death, at his death, and then his resurrection. And it restores man into fellowship with the Trinity. That's not past tense. That's something not that, that's yet to come or on the day that you ask and you pray the prayer. How many of you prayed the prayer? Okay, some of you aren't sure. How many of you don't need to raise your hand? How many of you prayed a prayer and you said, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. Forgive me. I accept you into my life. Something like that. Uh, probably everybody in the room, right? You prayed that prayer. And you think that's when you got saved. No, that's when you brought your heart to God, pulled back the curtain, peeled away the layers of the onion, and God said, okay, now what I did on Calvary, you have come into a realization of, and by faith you're appropriating it in your life. Thank you, because that's what I've been believing for. That's what I've seen in my mind's eye from before the foundation of the world. I saw you accepting me. I saw you turning your heart to me. I believed it would happen. And God had faith for your salvation. It really is not so much about my faith in Jesus. It's about His faith in me. That's why when I stray, that's why when I blow it, that's why when I do stupid things and sin, God doesn't get all upset about it. He says, okay, that was stupid. <laughs> I could have spared you that, you know, had you read my word or had you gotten in fellowship with some others or had you, you know, there's some things you can do, some tools you can use. But you know what? It doesn't change a thing. It doesn't change my love for you. It doesn't change your position in me. It doesn't change my salvation, which was before the foundation of the world. Hallelujah. Now notice verse 6 here. I want you to see this. Verse 6, And you were included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. Notice, you belong to Him. He's marked you. It's the same word used in verse 1. He's marked you. You have a new horizon. Jesus and His resurrection are my new horizon. What do we mean by horizon? Well, typically, of course, we think of the horizon as where earth meets the sky. Now, there's something right there. Didn't Jesus teach us to pray? As it is in heaven, so it be in earth. Isn't that what he taught us to pray? See, we have a new horizon. The gospel isn't just about forgiveness of sins. It's about heaven coming to earth. Oh, you're not listening to me. I said the new horizon, the gospel, the message we are proclaiming is not that just that Jesus forgave my sins and someday I'll go to heaven. It's that something happened, an event took place where God's redeemed the whole thing, turned it on upside down on its head, and brought it back to Himself through the mighty resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And now we have a new horizon. We've been marked beforehand. We have a new definition. He's located us afresh. I love that. By His powerful resurrection from the dead, by the Holy Spirit, He locates and confirms His being and His sonship in God. Here's another definition of horizon. The limit of a person's mental perception, experience, or interest. You know, before I found out about the love of God, I wasn't very interested in the love of God. Before I found out that this wasn't based on my faith, I wasn't very interested. My perception of the gospel and living for Christ was really messed up because it was very religious. I thought that to live for Jesus, I had to pull out the moral list and start living by it. That I had to stop doing all these things and start doing all these other things that I wasn't doing. And I had to live a certain way, a way that really wouldn't be much fun. And then I had to be around a bunch of people that... Really? <laughs> You listen to the, what? You go, where? Your hair has to be, how long? Your skirts can't be shorter than, where? <laughs> right? Remember, remember that? Some of you aren't old enough to even identify with that. Brother, I, we preached that, didn't we? I mean, that's, that was our gospel. Change your behavior. Change your behavior. Get out the moral list. Check it off. And when we see you living holy enough, then you're accepted into our club. And God says, I'm going to change your horizon. This is not about your behavior. It's about heaven coming to earth. The horizon has changed. I'm going to change your perception. I'm going to change the way you think. I'm going to bring you into a new day and in Acts chapter 13, verse 32 to 33, Paul preaches about this incredible resurrection and he quotes Psalm verse 2. I'm going to go there. Let's go Acts, please. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 32 and 33. Paul's preaching. And now we are here to bring you what? Say it out loud. And now we are here to bring you the good news. The promise was made where? To our ancestors. <laughs> Once you get this new horizon, you, you begin to understand this thing has been the good news all the way back into the Old Testament, but they couldn't see it because of their religion because they were steeped in law code, moral law code, and they missed the Christ. Verse 33, and God has now fulfilled it for us. What? Their descendants. We are, we're their descendants. Paul's preaching to a crowd of Jews. And now he's fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by what? Raising Jesus. <laughs> And we conveniently leave that so often out of our gospel. We make the gospel completely about forgiveness of sins and going to heaven. 
And really, Jesus talked very little about heaven. In fact, he talked very little about hell. You know what he was interested in? Not hell, not going to heaven, but bringing heaven to earth. That's different. That changes the horizon. That changes my perception. That changes the limitations that I operate under in my experience. Because now I realize it's not about me going to heaven. It's not about me getting good enough or being good enough to go to heaven. It's about what he did when he died, was buried, and rose again, accomplishing for me what I couldn't do. And now he says, I'm bringing heaven to earth, and you already belong to me. You're my kid. You're my child. See, I don't know if I can believe that. That's okay. He believes it for you. You'll come along. You'll come along. God believes you'll be saved. God believes your neighbors will be saved. God believes your fellow employees will be saved. God believes that difficult family member will accept Jesus and be saved. God believes that. Then in 1 Peter chapter... Oh, you've got to go there. 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's run over there. I didn't write any of these out because I figured, well, maybe we should look in the Bible at them. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3... Watch this. Paul gives us to understand that we are born anew in the resurrection. That's where the new birth takes place. In the resurrection. Verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Watch this. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus from the dead. It didn't even take your faith. It didn't depend on what your behavior and what you stopped doing. It was His mercy. It was His love for me that reached down and revealed to me the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so He says, we have been born again. Why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. And watch this. Now we live. He said, look at it. Now we live with a new expectation. Now we live with a new horizon. We've been located. We've been located with a new location. Turn to somebody and say, I've been relocated. Now listen to this. Listen to that verse from the complete Jewish Bible. Verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. Praised be God. Father of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, who, in keeping with his great, watch this, who, in keeping with his great mercy, has caused us through the resurrection of Yeshua from the dead to be born again to a living hope, a new horizon. And then we look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. Turn there. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. Some of you don't even know these people were in the Bible. Hosea who? (laughs) Isn't that a Christmas song? Hosea, Hosea. No, that's a book in the Bible. Before the Christ... Before the death, burial, and resurrection. Before the New Testament was was canonized. 
before the Apostle Paul. Before Hosea prophetically looked because he was located in a new horizon prophetically. He could see ahead. He wasn't bound in moral religion and tradition. He looked ahead and prophetically saw a new location, a new horizon that would eventually come to the people of God. And it's the only scripture in all of the Old Testament that prophesies the third day resurrection. Hosea Chapter 6, verse 2. In just a short time, He will restore us so that we may live in His presence. Now that's the New Living Translation. But I want you to listen to it from the NIV. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will restore us. Why? That we might live in His presence. He's going to change our horizon. It's going to take two days and He'll work on reviving us. But on that third day, He'll do what? He's going to restore everything that was lost. The Son of God came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's going to restore everything that was lost. How's He going to do it? He's going to rise from the dead. And what's going to be available to you from that point forward? His presence. We live under an open heaven. You don't have to beg God to come. Some of the songs we sing are so sad. Begging and crying and longing for God to come. Pass me by, oh Pass me not, O gentle Savior. What? (laughs) That's a hymn. You remember that? I'm looking over to one of my older elders over here that's, he's been there, done that, preached that. One of the elders in the church, not our church, in the city here, he relates to all of this. Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya, kumbaya, my Lord. Isn't that sad? I mean, we sit around the campfire and sing that crazy song. Lord, if you can see your way, just come. Lord, we're longing for Give us your presence. And he's already opened heaven. On the second day, he worked on revive us. On the third day, he restored it all. Why? That we might live in his presence. Complete Jewish Bible. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up and we will live in his presence. This is why you study from at least five or six or seven different Bible translations. Never get fixed on one. If you're fixed on the New Living Translation alone in your Bible study, that would have done you a great disservice in this verse. You would have completely skipped over it and missed what the Holy Spirit was saying by not having other translations to read from. What am I saying? The main point of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that it is the beginning of God's new world. And His presence is now available. 
Quit turning your nose up when you're around sinners. Quit shunning and cringing when you hear somebody cuss. Quit building a higher fence because of what you see your neighbors doing on the other side. Quit avoiding certain restaurants because there's too many sinners in there. We are living, dear ones, under an open heaven where His presence is immediately available. And Jesus has taught us to pray, and we've been praying it for over 2,000 years. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've been praying it. Now, either God's deaf or He lied when He taught us to pray that. Because for many Christians, they don't know or enjoy the presence of God. They're always trying to get it. Always trying to get free from some sort of sin so that they can get God's presence. Always crying out, Lord, forgive me, I'm unworthy. God says, no, I've done the reviving. I've done the restoring. You're mine. You are in my presence. And I accomplished it by my faith. I did it before the foundation of the world. I declared it. And I located it and confirmed it for all of eternity by one act, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And verse 6 says, And all of you Gentiles, you're part of this. You belong to him now. All right, there's five more verses. <laughs> Somebody come up and close this thing.